Psalm 22. What would be your answer if someone asked you, what is the greatest proof that you could give me that the Bible is what it claims to be, that it is actually inspired of God, breathed out by Him, and that is it is inerrant, without error? What would you tell someone? Well, one of my answers has got to be fulfilled prophecy. Fulfilled prophecy. You say, why? Well, because who else knows the future? except God. And this is because only God is the one who ordains the future. Only He is the one who can bring about what He says is going to happen in the future. And nowhere is this validation of the Bible more true than the prophecies that were actually fulfilled in Jesus' first coming. Although recorded centuries, by the way, before His incarnation, there's there's actually more... Did you know there's more than one hundred Old Testament prophecies that concerned the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Hundreds of years before He even came. There's over a hundred. So each one of those documents the authenticity of Holy Scripture. And this is what makes Psalm 22 so amazing. It's written 1,000 years before Christ's first coming. And the psalm reads, uh, it, it, we're going to look at this, but as you read it, it's, 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 it's as if it were actually recorded by someone who's standing at the foot of the cross. It's unbelievable. I mean, the very words that was spoken by Christ from the cross, and, and, and by the way, we can now understand what was Jesus thinking? What was he meditating upon as he's hanging on the cross? I've often wondered that for most of my life. And and it struck me this past week as I was studying Psalm 22. That's it. This is what Jesus was thinking about as he's hanging on the cross. I'll show you why why I say that here in a moment. But in the psalm here, David set forth a very graphic portrayal of the cross hundreds of years before Crucifixion was even invented. <laughs> as it was invented as a form of capital punishment. And so with the precision here of an eyewitness, David wrote the most detailed description of the cross that is found anywhere in your Bible. In fact, some have even called this the fifth gospel. That's how amazing this is. And by the way, as we get into this, let me just say there's different opinions about whether David wrote this particular psalm to describe his own experience, or is he writing this as a prophetic psalm looking forward to the Messiah? Well, I personally believe that this psalm was written primarily with future events in mind, and I've got good reasons for saying that. Uh, This particular interpretation is supported by many facts. Let me just give you a few that that I have come to learn about. Like, for example, there are no recorded events in David's life that correspond to this event here. Uh, number two, the psalm has specific phrases that could only be used of crucifixion. And, and this is, remember, well before crucifixion was even invented. And unlike other psalms, this one here contains no mention of the psalmist's 
personal sin, and, and there's no mention of confession of sin here. And there's no call to God for vindication of the wrong suffered, like typically happen in lament psalms. Therefore, it is concluded by many interpreters and experts of the Bible that this psalm is a prophetic picture of the Messiah. Let me do something a little different. I don't normally do this. Here's spoiler alert. Here's, here's the theme. Normally we read Scripture first and I give you a proposition. right? So I'm going to give you a theme today. And then we'll read the Scripture. So here it is. That Jesus Christ will be forsaken by God the Father, put to death by evil men, yet remain fully confident in God's faithfulness so he would declare his victory. Let's read the Bible together, Psalm 22. Here's what it says. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusted in Yahweh. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust in you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They glare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Yahweh, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear Yahweh, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. For you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. 
The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied, and those who seek Him shall praise Yahweh. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to Yahweh, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to Yahweh, and He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before Him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve Him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim His righteousness to a people yet unborn, that He has done it. There's many things you should notice about Christ in this psalm, the Messiah here. First of all, we see that Christ, we see Christ's separation from God. And when I say God, I'm referring to God the Father there. And, and how do we see that? Well, in verse 1, we see He is forsaken by God the Father. And, and, he's, and He actually cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so the, the psalm's beginning here with a rhetorical question that is meant to show this rejection that's suffered by Christ. And if you know your Bible, these are the exact words that Jesus quoted as he's hanging on the cross of Calvary. They were actually spoken during the three hours of darkness while Jesus is hanging on the cross. And the Bible says it was at noon when the sun is high in the sky that God brought a great darkness over the land. Why would he do that? He did that from noon till 3 p.m. I think... God brought the darkness to to shield Jesus during those three hours because it was at that time that God was laying on Jesus our sin. Those were private hours. And so God was shielding Jesus during that time. It's as if God had shut the doors of heaven upon Jesus so that what actually transpired during those hours happened only between Him and Jesus. So what was Jesus thinking of during those three hours as He hangs on the cross? There's two clues in the New Testament accounts. First, at the beginning of this period, Jesus suddenly cries out, and you have the very words of Jesus in Matthew 27, verse 46, because Jesus says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus knew Psalm 22, verse 1. And He quotes it on the cross. It was a direct and appropriate quotation from this first verse. So you know what Jesus is thinking about. The other thing is that just before Jesus died, Jesus actually calls out, you have his words in John 19, when he said, It is finished. And that's a quotation from the last verse of Psalm 22. So here you have the bookends of Psalm 22. You know what Jesus is thinking. The end of Psalm 22 says, He has done it. He has done it. That's referring 
um, well, in our text, that's how the verse reads. It's, It's referring to, by the way, referring to God as the subject. But there's no object for the verb in the, in the Hebrew, the original language. And so it can equally well be translated, it is finished. That's what it means. And so you put the clues together here, you can fairly be certain that Jesus is meditating on the Old Testament during those hours of his suffering, and that he's actually seeing his own crucifixion as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies particularly Psalm 22. This has got to be one of his favorite psalms because he he quotes it more than most others. But this feeling of abandonment went even further. Not only is he forsaken by God in verse 21. And by the way, why, why was Jesus forsaken by God? May I remind you, it is because of your sin. He's hanging on the cross because of your sin, not his sin. He's there taking your place. You deserve to be there. You deserve to take that punishment, but Jesus willingly steps in and takes your sin. So God pours His wrath on the sin bearer and becomes our propitiation. But notice in verse 2, there's also silence from God. There's silence. And so the Bible says, Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. Why is that? Well, no answer came because the holiness of God forbade him from intervening in his son's death. It had to be finished. The silence is shocking. If you know anything about doctrine, that is, you say, why? Well, for all eternity past, forever and ever, Jesus had never known separation from God the Father. Perfect communion and fellowship and unity in the Godhead for all eternity past. And according to the teaching of the New Testament here, Jesus was indeed forsaken by God while he's bearing the sin of his people there on the cross. This is the very essence, by the way, of the atonement when God makes us at one. See, Jesus bore your hell in order that you might share his heaven. What a great exchange. And this is what 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us. See, it's for our sake he made him, that's Jesus, to be sin, or, or, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Wow, that's, that's a great exchange. See, Jesus gets your sin, you get his righteousness. Wow, that's a good deal. <laughs> that's the best deal you ever get. So to be forsaken, by the way, it means to have the light of God's countenance and, and, and this sense of presence just eclipsed. It goes dark. Which is what happened to Jesus, by the way, is he's bearing the wrath of God against sin for the believers. However, that's not the end of the story. As, as a lot of the laments in Scripture do, there is some good stuff here. There's positive stuff. Well, it's all good. But And, and so in verses 3 to 5, we see Christ actually trusted in God during this time. What was he trusting in? Well, the same things you and I need to trust in when we're going through difficult times in our life. And the first thing is we, we see here in verse 3 that Christ trusted in God's sovereignty. 
He trusted in God's sovereignty. Look, look what it says in verse 3. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. God is enthroned. He's on His throne. He reigns supreme over all of His creation. He's in total control of a situation here which seems totally out of control. He's fulfilling God's purposes. And Jesus is trusting in that. But we also see that Christ trusted in God's salvation. He's trusting in God's salvation here, verses 4 and 5. Because look what verse 5 says, To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. By the way, do you notice the word trust is mentioned there several times? Three times, in fact. And it's really used as a synonym for faith in God. Where is this trust coming from? Well, he realized the past faithfulness of God. And God has always been faithful to deliver His people who put their trust in Him. That deliverance may not come in your earthly life, by the way, but it will always come. And so Christ was encouraged here to keep persevering as He's on the cross. And as He meditated on the very character of God, it encouraged Him. And so if the nation of Israel here... uh, cried to the Lord and were saved, well, how how much more would the Son of God be saved? So he trusted in God's salvation. But it wasn't easy for Christ, because look at the scorn that Christ receives from the people here in verses 6 to 8. Verse 6 tells us he's rejected by the very ones whom he had come to save. People whom he had come to save. As it says in verse 6, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. See, the very treatment here that Jesus received on the, Christ, uh, on the cross sorry, was inhumane and, and undeserved, by the way. He was beaten so severely that his own mother, his own earthly mother, probably didn't even recognize him. He was unrecognizable, and the scorn of man was shown in the cruel treatment that Jesus suffered. You say, what did they do to Jesus? Well, the New Testament tells us it's horrible to even mention these things. They they spat upon him. They punched him in the face, pulled out his beard, put a crown of thorns on him, spoke blasphemous words. They beat him with a whip, just to name a few things. Verses 7 and 8 tell us that he was ridiculed by the people. He was ridiculed. Verse 7 says, all who see me mock me. And so the crowd's reaction here to Jesus is demonstrating what's coming out of their hearts. It's hatred. And the psalmist foresaw, foresaw that as Jesus hung on the cross, many would hurl these blasphemous insults while they're shaking their heads. You say, what's that talking about? Uh, Some people, we do this even today. And it's referring to a very mocking gesture that's similar to what uh, sometimes uh, rugby fans do to the referees. Right? When they don't like the referee's call, right? You shake your head, you jeer, you mock the referee, and you call him blind, and you need some glasses, dude, and go see the eye doctor, right? You know, all this sort of rubbish it's kind of like sometimes 
you know, little kids might stick their tongues out at someone because they don't like what someone did, right? That's kind of the idea here. It's not nice what they're doing. It's, it's ridicule. And Matthew tells us exactly what they're doing and saying. Look at this, Matthew 27, verse 39 says, Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Mockingly saying this. By the way, just stop for a moment. As I was reading Matthew 27 this week, I I, I was thinking, I wonder what those guys would have done if Jesus, which he could have done this, actually came off the cross and faced them. I can just picture Jesus making the nails come out of his hands and his feet, climbing down off the cross. Okay, here I am. Now what? (laughs) Anyway, he didn't do that. He had greater purposes in mind. But look what they said. He said, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. So he bore the ridicule. He could have come off the cross. He could have said, I don't want to do this atonement stuff. I'm going to deal with these mockers. But he didn't. He had a mission to accomplish. And one of the reasons for that is, point number four here, is that if you're keeping notes or have your outline, we see Christ's submission to God. We see his submission to God. While he is equal In essence, with God the Father and the Holy Spirit, he submits himself. He submits himself because he says in verse 9, Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. So contrary here to to the actual accusations of the mockers, Jesus knew that God brought him out of the womb. And of course, that's a reference to the virgin birth of Christ. And that God had actually made him trust him as a child. Now, that's referring to his, his human nature. Remember, he has two natures in one person now forever. He is the God-man. And so in these verses, Jesus remembers God's faithfulness to him at birth and, and throughout his earthly life. And this is exactly what he needed, by the way. Because... As he suffered, he was actually sustained by meditating on how God has sustained him in the past. By the way, lesson to be learned here. Lesson for you to learn, friends. You meditate on God's past faithfulness to sustain you in the present. Did you hear that? You, what do you meditate upon? You've you got to preach truth to yourself. You've got to meditate on the right content, or you will have a noisy soul. So what do you do? You meditate on God's past faithfulness to sustain you in the present. This is what Jesus is doing here. Good, good lesson to learn. And so Christ submitted himself to God. But verses 11 to 18 show us Christ suffering from God. 
Let, let, let me repeat that. Notice where the suffering comes from. Because Holy Scripture does not back down on this. The suffering is not coming from the Jews. It's not coming from the Romans. This is God's work. The Romans are just pawns to accomplish His purposes here. And it's a graphic picture of death by crucifixion. We see Old Testament prophecy coming true before our eyes here. And the first thing we see in verse 11 is that His friends fled. His friends fled. All those disciples are gone except for one. There's only one left at the foot of the cross. Jesus' mother was there, of course. But they fled. That that, that must have hurt. Because verse 11 says, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Lonely feeling. Number two, his life was surrounded here in verses 12 and 13. He feels like his life is surrounded. Now, figuratively, Jesus was surrounded by a pack of wild, ravenous animals. They're not acting human. All the metaphors here are used to compare these people to beasts. Did you notice the metaphors that God uses? Strong bulls, roaring lions, dogs, and oxen. Nice comparison. And and, and here's the reality. When people reject God, guess what you act like? When you reject God, you act like an animal. You act like an animal. And that's exactly how God's describing them. And number three, it says that his bones were disjointed. Ouch! Any of you ever had a a bone come out of joint? Shoulder out of socket or knee just do weird things it's not supposed to do? Painful. And so Jesus fulfilled that prophecy as well in verse 14 when it says, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. Verse 14 tells me that that, that his heart melted like wax. The idea is here the Lord's strength upon the cross was fading. His, His humanity was fading. His strength was gone, verse 15 says. It was hot. He's thirsty. He he tells us he was thirsty in the New Testament. And that's why they tried to, you know, be really mean. Here, you know, have some vinegar. Yeah, really nice when I'm thirsty. Drink some vinegar. But his body was pierced. Again, hundreds of years before crucifixion was invented, but it says that he was nailed on the cross. Horrible way to die. His bones were exposed in verse 17. The Bible says, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. Mm. The idea is he could feel the pain of each one of them. And he's aware that people are staring at him. They're gloating over him. And the idea is there. there's great shame in this. And in honor culture, this is deeply hurtful, by the way. This is an honor culture. And the honor is being destroyed. The whole identity here is being destroyed. The indignity that Christ felt was great because of His nakedness before the crowd. And number 8, in verse 18, it says His clothes were divided. (laughs) Here's the soldiers at the foot of the cross. 
the, the very guys doing the dirty work here, they're gambling to decide, well, who's going to get Jesus' clothes? And Jesus is there seeing all this. It's a terrible prophecy. But there's a turning point, as, as all the lament psalms usually, as they do, we see, what does Jesus do? He prays. He prays. Look at Christ's prayer to God in verses 19 through 21. And the first thing he prays for is, God, please strengthen me. Please strengthen me. Notice the first word of verse 19 is a contrasting conjunction. It says, but, oh, I love that word. But you, O Yahweh, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. It's a silent prayer that's offered by Christ as he hung on the cross. And it's beginning with a plea to God the Father to be not far off. Don't, don't, please don't feel absent from me. For Jesus, this dreadful distance from his Father must, I think it must have been even worse than the very physical pain he was suffering. So he prays for strength. He prays to be saved in verse 20. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. So like the goring, uh, the goring of horns from a wild ox or the pier... The nails pierce Christ's hands and his feet. But yet, look at verse 21. It ends on a very triumphant note. And that word translated, save me, literally means, you have heard me. He knew his father could hear him. The fellowship's being restored. And and therefore, this section ends on a very optimistic note. And it begins a very important turning point in, in the atmosphere, in the mood of this psalm. And so as Christ died on the cross, he's anticipating the Father's deliverance, and he's believing that his prayers and his cries are actually being heard. So point number seven is talking about Christ's salvation for God. He he had a mission to accomplish. He knew why he was there, and he finished it. And that's the whole end end of Psalm 22. And, And notice the mission comes in three parts here. We, we see that the salvation was proclaimed to his own countrymen, first of all. It was proclaimed to the Jews. The Jews are mentioned in here in verses 22 to 24. Because he talks about his brothers there in verse 22. Uh, verse 23 talks about the offspring of Jacob. Of course, Jacob's name, you remember, was turned to Israel. So these are the people... The very people whom Jesus came to save, salvation's proclaimed to them. And so notice there's this major shift at this point from a plea for deliverance to this affirmation of praise to God for his faithfulness. And the verses imply, by the way, a future resurrection of Christ in which he's going to announce his triumph over sin and death. The resurrection was God's approval of the sacrifice. And so from Hebrews 2, verse 12, it's very clear that Christ proclaimed this. Listen to Hebrews 2, which says this, I will tell of your name to my brothers. Quotation from Psalms. So verse 22 is quoted in Hebrews here as referring to Christ. 
it tells us that Jesus is the speaker and is going to continue to be the speaker throughout the psalm. And so that phrase there, in the congregation I will praise you, is actually a prophecy that is concerning Jesus' appearance there in the upper room to his disciples and later on to the 500 witnesses after Christ's resurrection. 500 people at once. No way it's all a delusion. And of course, ultimately to those in heaven. And then in verse 23, you got that glorious phrase there, the offspring of Jacob. It's a reference to the Jewish converts after Jesus' resurrection. Certainly the gospel was proclaimed to the Jews first. That's what Paul says. As the first church, by the way, was planted in where? Jerusalem. So there you go. So before the other nations, Israel was chosen by God to glorify Him. Not because they're special, just because God chose them. And so at this point, Jesus pleaded for His people to, notice what it says, to stand in awe of Him, all you offspring of Israel. That's what the Bible says. So Christ wanted the people to know that although He was despised by them, God had not despised or abhorred the afflicted. In fact, what did God think of Christ's sacrifice? God actually approved of Jesus' sacrifice for sin. But notice the second group. Salvation's not just for the Jew, but we see in verses 25 to 29 that salvation's proclaimed to the Gentiles. That's all the non-Jews, which is probably you. Verse 25 says, From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear Him. Notice 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to Yahweh, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. (laughs) All the Gentiles. Praise God for that. So, in view of God's listening ear, notice what the psalmist writes. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. What's the point, friends? What's the point? Well, not only was God the object of the praise, He's also the very source and foundation of that praise. And what are the vows in verse 25? Well, they're probably thank offerings vowed during His trouble. And by the way, in such cases, the flesh of the sacrifice was to be eaten. And so this explains the imagery here in these verses of a banquet or a feast at which the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. That's what the psalm's telling us. And so because of the great sacrifice offered by Christ, people may enter into His presence so that the... Notice the psalm says, Those who seek Him shall praise Yahweh. So, included in the Abrahamic covenant was God's grace to bless people from all nations... You remember that great covenant in Genesis 12? All peoples of the earth would be blessed through Abraham's seed and offspring. And so you see Jesus fulfilling this. So God declared in eternity past that the families of the nations will worship before Him. By the way, this submission resulted from the very truth of verse 28. Look at verse 28. For kingship belongs to Yahweh and He rules over the nations. And so verses 30 and 31 then tell us that salvation is proclaimed to 
all peoples of the earth. All peoples of the earth. That's good news because verse 30 says, Posterity shall serve him and shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. It is finished. That word posterity, by the way, refers to the future generations yet unborn who would serve God by proclaiming His very righteousness. And this proclamation of the Gospel here hinges on that truth at the end that He has done it. He has done it. It's just another way of stating that Christ has finished it. The mission was accomplished. And so as Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Why? Because the righteous demands of God were fully met in Christ by His atoning work. And so as a result of that, the righteousness of God then is applied to every believer's account. And so may I remind you of the theme here. You you should be able to see every one of these phrases throughout the psalm. We've seen that Jesus Christ was forsaken by God the Father. And He was put to death by evil men. But what was Christ's response through all this? He remained fully confident in God's faithfulness. For what purpose? So He was able to declare His victory. So let me give you just a few thoughts of application from this text. Number one, my friend, if you have never trusted Christ for your eternal life, for salvation from your sin, for salvation from an eternal hell separated from an eternal God, my friend, you must humble yourself and trust this Jesus. Not a Jesus of the making of your mind, for that would be idolatry. You say, well, why do I need to do this? Well, because salvation is only here. Look what verse 23 says. Salvation is only for those who humble themselves and trust Jesus. Because the psalm is showing us it is for those who fear Yahweh. You must fear Yahweh. Your your holy reverential awe must be for Him and Him alone. You must seek Yahweh, verse 26. And verse 27 is talking about repentance here when it says return or remember and turn to Yahweh. Verse 29 talks about bow down before Him. That is worship of the true God. And so, my friend, the problem is not the sufficiency of the atonement. The atonement is sufficient for every individual in this universe. So Christ's work is utterly sufficient. The problem is, is our stiff necks and our hard hearts. If you reject Christ... He will reject you. He'll give you what you want. So you must humble yourself and trust Christ. My friend, if you're a believer, make the cross of Christ central in your whole life. Your whole life. See, the cross should be central in a believer's daily walk with God. Not just, it's not just a Sunday thing. It, it's a every day of the week. Your entire life. And the Christian is to live as he died selflessly, sacrificially, and with a great abandonment to the will of God. 
he was totally submitted to the will of God. And so as the Lord Jesus remained faithful to the end, so you must endure in the work that God has given to you, friend. There's a mission for you. There's a purpose for your life. But make the cross of Christ, His, His very purpose in coming to earth, or central in your whole life. And then last, number three, is let the cross be central in your witness for Christ. Remember what Paul says in Galatians 6? I glory in the cross of Christ. And so this is the heart of the Gospel, friends. The cross shows us the need for a Savior. It shows us our great need is we, we need a substitutionary death of God's Son for sins. We, we need the One who is perfect to bear our sins. And this is what believers proclaim to the world. This is what we should be proclaiming to the world. <laughs> and the Apostle Paul preached Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's a good example. It's a good model to follow. And so most believers then declare a dying Lamb of God to a dying world. But don't forget that dying Lamb of God to a dying world is also a risen Lamb. And before the throne of God, we see in Revelation 4 and 5, they are worshiping the Lamb who was slain, who is risen, who still bears the marks of His crucifixion even today. And so, why do we do this? Because Jesus is the only hope of eternal life for sinners. The only hope. The only hope. And so you must believe this, friends. If you don't, then you're not going to bother witnessing accurately of Christ. You're not going to care about people's greatest needs if you don't believe that truth. So may God enable us to believe and to live in this way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for giving us Psalm 22. Thank You for Jesus being the fulfillment of these prophecies. And may we be encouraged by fulfilled prophecy. May we be encouraged that this Word is accurate and true and faithful, and it is certainly relevant. And it is sufficient. It is without error. And it is certainly inspired by you. We're thankful that only you could do that. <laughs> this is amazing. So may we believe it. May we be encouraged by Jesus coming, bearing our sin and being our substitutionary atonement. And this Lamb who came to bear the sin of the world. May we proclaim that message, an accurate, true, and faithful gospel. May we not be ashamed of this gospel. May we not be ashamed of Christ. May we bear the good news to a lost and dying world who needs so desperately to hear this great hope. No matter what, what cost they may, that may bring to us, as they crucified Christ, Jesus said we could expect persecution to come our way as well. And so, may we not be ashamed and bring this message forth. In Jesus' name, amen.